What is going on, True Crime? Oh my god. Okay, here. <laughs> Just do it. Do it. <laughs> what is going on, True Crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. So as some of you probably know that we mentioned weeks ago when we set up our new studio in our Portland house... We face each other finally, and so as the intro music is playing, we just look at each other and laugh, and we just can't, like, why is it funny? I don't, I don't know. know. It's really <laughs> not. We're just dumb, so. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, Heath, would you like to start off by thanking the wonderful people who brought this case to us? Yes, yes. Today's case was suggested to us by Terry and Maggie, so we wanted to give them a big thank you. And I had never heard of this case before, but... After getting into the details, I was absolutely horrified at what I found. So thank you, Terry, and thank you, Maggie, and thank you, everybody who's listening to this uh, case and also sharing this story. Yes, and before we get into it, I just want to mention that we just came out with a brand new episode on Patreon. It is The Murder of Ashling Murphy. That took place in Ireland actually just a couple months ago. So we released it yesterday on St. Patrick's Day, just kind of you know, to, to honor her because a lot of things are going on in her hometown, you know, as of St. Patrick's Day to honor her memory. Yeah, so a lot of celebrations for her. Yeah. So a very devastating case. Uh, you can check that out and 60 other full length bonus episodes on patreon.com slash going West podcast. All right, guys, without further ado, this is episode 184 of going West. So let's get into it. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. In June of 2011, a beautiful law student studying for her bar exam in Georgia suddenly vanished from her apartment. No one had heard from her in days, but when a welfare check was conducted, it brought no new clues. The next day, police discovered something horrifying and it didn't take long to put the pieces together, especially after a fellow student had a concerning interview with a local news station. This is the story of Lauren Giddings. Teresa Giddings was born on April 18, 1984, to parents William, who went by Bill, and her mother Karen, in Tacoma Park, Maryland. 
Lauren grew up with two younger sisters, Caitlin and Sarah, in the city of Laurel, Maryland, which hosts a population of just over 25,000 residents. Her father, Bill, owned Giddings Hauling, which is a construction company that specializes in debris cleanup. Laurel is also located about 30 miles southwest of the larger city of Baltimore, which I'm sure most of you know of, and it's also just 40 minutes northeast of Washington, D.C., So she grew up right in between these two cities. Lauren was raised in a religious Catholic household, and she was an active member in her family's church, which was the St. Mary of Mills Catholic Church right there in Laurel. And this is also where she would attend school from kindergarten to eighth grade. Lauren was smart and loved to read, but she also loved to play sports. And when she enrolled at Athelton High School in Columbia, Maryland, which is 10 miles from where she grew up in Laurel, She joined her school's field hockey team, softball team, and dance club. Yeah, so she was very busy. Yeah, very busy gal. Lauren was described as the type of person who could make anyone smile, and she was super outgoing with definitely like a larger-than-life personality that often made her the center of attention. She had long blonde hair and beautiful blue eyes, and you'd be pressed to find a photo of her not smiling. Seriously, she's always smiling. Lauren graduated from high school in 2002, and after graduation, she moved to Georgia to attend Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, where she majored in political science and minored in religious studies. But she was also able to join her college's softball team, which was something that she absolutely loved. And this was huge because Lauren was the first person in her family to attend college, and she was extremely driven and ambitious. So her family was very proud of her. And in 2006, she earned her undergrad degree. Lauren then moved back to the area that she grew up in, but a little bit closer to DC, where she worked for the National Center for Public Policy as an intern. And this gave her the experience to take her career to the next level because Lauren aspired to be a lawyer, but not just any lawyer. Lauren wanted to become a public defender and represent those that she felt needed counsel the most. She just wanted to help people in any way that she could. So in 2008, Lauren headed back down south to Georgia, where she began attending Mercer University Walter F. George School of Law in Macon, Georgia. And Macon is located in the center of the state, and it has a population of about 150,000 people. Macon is also just an hour south of the much bigger city of Atlanta. Lauren moved into a place at the Barristers Hall Apartments located off of Georgia Avenue, which were a set of apartments owned by Mercer Law School alumni and made for law students specifically. And it was just across the street from her law school building, so this was perfect for Lauren. She couldn't be any closer to school, and the apartment complex was quiet, hosting only 16 units in total, some of which had a separate office for studying, and she lived on the second floor of two floors, which she loved. She also became the president of the Federalist Society of her law school, and the group was described as, quote, an organization of 60,000 lawyers, law students, scholars, and other individuals who believe and trust that individual citizens can make the best choices for themselves and society. It was founded in 1982 by a group of law students interested in making sure that the principles of limited government embodied in our constitution receive a fair hearing. That was a mouthful. That was. That was a lot. (laughs) 
So Lauren also brought along the most precious part of her life, her fluffy little Pekingese dog that she named Butterbean. She would carry around Butterbean everywhere she went, even when she was running errands in her Mitsubishi Gallant convertible. It appeared that Lauren was, I mean, honestly, like the real-life Elle Woods. She really was, honestly. Yeah, I mean, she had her little dog. She was always wearing pink. She was fashionable. And she was a stunningly beautiful law student who always had men chasing after her. And in fact, she had caught the eye of an older man by the name of David Vandiver back in 2007, just after she earned her undergrad degree. David, who was two decades older than Lauren had met her at a golf tournament for the National Center for Public Policy, which was being held for a coworker who passed away from cancer. The two hit it off immediately, and although there was a bit of an age gap, David and Lauren shared the same humor and wit, and they began dating shortly after meeting. David really liked Lauren's taste for life and just the fact that she read The Economist and watched the History Channel. And she was also the person who encouraged the company that she interned at, to celebrate Pink Wednesday, which is something that she came up with in order to have, you know, a little fun at the office. Now, you know, some people do casual Fridays. Yeah, they had Pink Wednesday. Yeah, Lauren did Pink Wednesday. So the couple were always on the go as well, whether they were snowboarding in Colorado or taking a short trip to Vegas for the weekend. But they did have their own careers to think about. So it seemed like over the years, there had been a few breakups here and there with each person seeing other partners. But In 2011, when Lauren was 27 and David was 48, their relationship seemed pretty steady. David was living in Atlanta at the time, so there was a bit of distance, but they were able to see each other pretty often. And Lauren wasn't alone in Macon because she had other law students as friends that she spent a lot of time with, and she was a total social butterfly, you know, always making friends wherever she went. And one fellow law student later said of Lauren, You were the glue that kept us all together. So it seems like, you know, Lauren is just a natural leader and people gravitate towards her. Absolutely. So in May of 2011, Lauren's life became extremely busy. She was graduating from Mercer University. And not only that, but she was tasked with being the maid of honor at her sister Caitlin's wedding a month later in June. Lauren was excited to be done with school, but her next career task was just kind of looming over her. She had to pass the Georgia bar exam. But before that grueling task, Lauren was headed back home to see family and prepare for her sister's wedding. On June 17th, 2011, Caitlin Giddings became Caitlin Wheeler, and the celebration back in Maryland was a much needed break for Lauren. But she knew that she had a lot of work to do if she was gonna pass the bar exam. So a few days after the wedding, Lauren headed back down to her Macon apartment to hit the books. She told her family that she would be, quote, locking herself away. And if they didn't hear from her for a few days, it was because she was hard at work. Well, that appeared to be the case because no one, including Lauren's friends or her family, had heard from her. But when her best friend, a woman named Katie O'Hare, whom she had known all of her life, tried to reach out to her about something important, and Lauren didn't respond, she knew that something was wrong. It was now Wednesday, June 29th, 2011, and Lauren's best friend that she had known since kindergarten, again, Katie O'Hare, was concerned that she was unable to get in touch with Lauren after several attempts. 
So Katie decided to call the other friend of Lauren's and the third to their, you know, lifelong friendship trio, a woman named Lori Supsick, to see if she had heard from Lauren in the past few days. Lori didn't answer immediately, but after her sister, who was also her roommate, said, why is Katie calling me? Lori knew that it had to be something important, so she called Katie back. Katie explained to Lori that she couldn't get in touch with Lauren and asked if she had heard anything, but Lori hadn't. Although days prior, Lori had sent Lauren a text message. Sorry, I know this is kind of confusing Lori and Lauren, but Lori had sent Lauren a text message, something that she knew Lauren would respond to. I think it was something like a joke, like she had sent her like a like some sort of joke, and she's like, oh, Lauren would definitely respond to this. Right, and that's why she was confused when she didn't receive an answer. But then again, Lauren did tell everyone that she was going to be a shut-in for a while, you know, while she studied for the bar. So Lori wasn't too alarmed. After speaking with Katie, Lori attempted to call Lauren again, but the call went straight to voicemail. In the meantime, Katie O'Hare, the friend, called Lauren's sister, Caitlin Wheeler, who was also concerned that she couldn't reach Lauren. So there was a bit of panic surrounding the situation because multiple very important people in Lauren's life are trying to reach her, but no one could seem to get through. So again, obviously she did say, I'll be studying, I'm a shut-in, but it's not like she's literally blocking herself off from the world completely, I'm right, sure. You, you, right, you would think that you would take a call from your sister yeah, I mean, or your best friend. You gotta like eat and, yeah. and go to bed and have like at least a little time to relax, so... This was definitely weird. Yeah, exactly. And on top of this, you know, Lauren's sister, Caitlin, knew of a friend and fellow law student named Ashley Morehouse, who was still living in the area after graduation. And she asked Ashley if it was possible for her to run by Lauren's apartment and check on her. And she agreed to do this. Ashley was headed to a Mexican restaurant in the area that night anyway. And Lauren's place was on the way. So she made a pit stop, arriving at Lauren's sometime between 630 and 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Ashley saw Lauren's Mitsubishi Gallant outside in the parking lot, so she figured that Lauren was there. So she walked up to the front-facing stairs to the second floor and knocked on apartment two, Lauren's apartment. But nobody answered. So Ashley, who was going to be late for her dinner date, explained to Caitlin through text that she could stop back by later and check again. The next few hours were filled with Caitlin reaching out to everyone that she could think of that knew Lauren, but absolutely no one had any information and hadn't spoke with Lauren in days. Well, and this is even more alarming now because somebody went to her apartment and she didn't answer the door. So she's not answering the phone and now she's supposedly inside her apartment, but she's not coming to the door. Right. This is very scary now. Yeah, and it even gets more alarming. So Caitlin had the idea to check Lauren's social media and her email, something that Lauren used every day. Caitlin had the passwords to Lauren's accounts, and upon logging in, she realized that Lauren hadn't used her Facebook or her email in days either. So this was the final push that led Caitlin to contact police, not realizing that Lauren's friend, Lori Supsick, had already done so. Lauren had an officer sent to Lauren's apartment at 10 p.m. that night to conduct a welfare check. But just like Ashley, the officer wasn't able to locate Lauren. 
The officer also noted that there was no sign of forced entry and proposed to Lori Supsick that Lauren may have gone on a trip for a few days, which is kind of a weird thing to suggest, considering yeah. she was supposed to be studying. Like, I don't know what? if this officer is just trying not to think of the worst case scenario, but... Uh, it just feels like a weird thing to suggest. Like, oh, maybe she went on a trip. Like, that's so random. Yeah, maybe she went to Disneyland. Right. You know? <laughs> but anyway, Lori was absolutely not convinced and even became frustrated with the officer who told her that she was also not allowed to file a missing persons report until 24 hours later. This information was relayed to Lauren's sister, Caitlin, and she gave the go-ahead for Ashley Morehouse to drop by and use Lauren's spare key that she kept in a white vase on her patio table to get inside Lauren's apartment. Ashley, who felt kind of unsure of what she may find inside the apartment, had brought along a few of her law school classmates with her you know, as kind of some protection, because at this point, they, they have no idea what the hell is happening. Yeah, and it's kind of a suspicious scenario, so she doesn't just want to go walking into the apartment alone. Right, I, I, don't, I don't blame her at all. <laughs> yeah. When the students entered Lauren's apartment, her keys and purse were on the couch, and her cell phone was on her bed, but the battery was dead, and Lauren was nowhere to be found. One student turned on Lauren's phone, and that's when they discovered that Lauren hadn't made any calls or sent any texts since Saturday, June 25th. And again, this is happening on Wednesday, June 29th, so that was days ago. Yeah, like four days prior. Lauren's school books and laptop were also still in her apartment, and it really didn't seem like there was any sort of foul play or that there had been, you know, a struggle at all. The only thing missing was Lauren's student ID card. So Ashley and the fellow students explained to Lauren's sister that everything you would need to take with you on a trip was still in Lauren's apartment. So this made the whole situation so much more confusing. Caitlin told Ashley and the other students to go outside and lock the door behind them and then call police. An officer was sent back over to the apartment at 12.52 a.m., so now we're into June 30th here, and uh, checked out the place while Ashley and the others walked around the complex, checking everywhere that they could, just hoping that Lauren had either been out late studying on campus or that she was at a bar and was on her way home. But hours passed, and after 3 a.m. rolled around and Lauren still wasn't home, Ashley and the classmates left the complex, all feeling that something was terribly wrong. The next morning... Lauren's longtime friend Lori was sitting in her Chicago apartment, too worried to even make it into work that day, so she called out. But as she sat scrolling through an online feed, she came across a startling headline. A body had been discovered at the Barristers Hall Apartments in Macon, Georgia, where Lauren lived. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. 
That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volix XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Looking to save on delivery? DashPass is your door to $0 delivery fees and more on DoorDash. And right now, using code GOINGWEST24, you can get 50% off up to $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Daphne and I use DoorDash constantly to order lunch or dinner or even groceries. And that's why we love using our DashPass, because it's the most affordable way to get anything in your area delivered right to your door. I mean, come on. DashPass pays for itself in two orders on average, making delivery even more worth it. And that's why we use it so often. And it also gives you special access to exclusive promotions and member-only menu items, all for just $9.99 a month. Get more from delivery for less. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash. Use code GOINGWEST24 to get 50% off up to a $10 value when you spend $12 or more after signing up for DashPass. Subject to change, terms apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. At approximately 9.40 a.m. on Thursday, June 30th, 2011, officers from the Macon Police Department 
found what appeared to be a human torso wrapped in black plastic in a rolling dumpster outside of Lauren's apartment. They were unsure if it belonged to Lauren because it was the only body part found, but they really, of course, did have a very strong suspicion that it was, especially because of how suspicious her disappearance was at this point. Yeah. They also uncovered a hacksaw hidden in the apartment's laundry room that had dried blood on it. Just as all of this was happening, Lauren's mother, Karen, was about to board a plane to Georgia to help search for her daughter. But when the news broke and Lauren's sister, Caitlin, heard about a body part being discovered, she immediately called her mom and told her not to get on the plane, explaining that she didn't want her to be there and that Lauren was likely deceased, which sadly DNA would later confirm. News quickly spread about the body part that had been found and Lauren's disappearance, and media outlets descended upon this little apartment complex, interviewing anyone who was willing to talk. That's when a news anchor named Michelle Quesada, who worked for a station uh, called WGXA, um, had a very interesting conversation with a 25-year-old man named Stephen Mark McDaniel. Stephen McDaniel was a fellow law student of Lauren's who lived right next door to her in the complex. He was a timid and lanky guy with unkept long curly puffy hair and a bit of facial scruff as well. In the afternoon of June 30th, Stephen was standing outside of his apartment watching the commotion of police investigating the area when he was approached by news anchor Michelle Quesada who wanted to ask him what he thought of the situation and what he might possibly know. And since that clip is available, we're gonna play part of it for you now. And I, no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time, anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, we've always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah. She and I, were we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because I mean, we went at, we went over. One of her friends had a key. We went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss. But I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we we just don't know where she is. What about um in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of. I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body. Um, had you heard? Any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I. I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. So at this part, he kind of like slowly walks away from the camera and sits down with his back facing the camera. Like on, he sits like on the sidewalk. Yeah. And here is the next part of the clip when he 
I guess, kind of processes. And, and starts to kind of break down. Yeah, and, and starts to, and it comes back for the interview. You've been studying for the bar? Uh, I, no one had seen her since Saturday because I, we all just, there's not a whole lot of interaction unless we're doing classes. Right. And she was doing the uh, online version of it. You all so, study together, though? I, uh, we were in, there's, there's two different people that, there's two companies that provide it. Captain provides it and Barbary provides it. I signed up with Barbary and I've been doing the lectures that they have in the mornings. She was doing the Kaplan online, so I hardly ever saw her. I, mean, I would see her like go out running, but I mean, What time would she go out running? I mean, I don't even know when. Okay, I, at night or morning? I, I saw her like midday a, a couple weeks ago. I mean, that was the last time I saw her was come back from the bar prep on the main campus because we got moved over there for a week or two. But she normally would run. That was yeah, the I mean, she, she she ran all the time. I mean, she, she had a group that she would go running with. I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone that would want to hurt her. She was as nice a person as there is. Was she moving soon? Did you know anything about her? Yeah, yeah. She she was going to be moving out uh, today. She was supposed to move out today because someone else was going to be moving into her apartment. New Austin. Do you know if she was like, where is she from? Is she uh, from Maryland? Maryland yeah, she's from up in Maryland. Can I just put this on you so we can hear you? Is that all right? Okay. I'm so sorry. Yeah, and you can just hold on for that. Thank you. So yeah, she's from Maryland. Yeah, I mean, she she was from up in Maryland. I mean, all her family was there, as far as I know. I mean, she. What's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? Why would anyone do this? Didn't hear anything? No. Didn't see I. Yeah. I, heard something. Maybe I could have helped. <laughs> okay, don't worry. Now, before we move on, let's talk a little bit about Stephen McDaniel. Stephen was born on September 9th, 1985, to parents Mark and Glenda McDaniel, and he grew up in the Atlanta suburb of Lilburn. Is that how you say it? I think so. Lilburn. Lilburn. Okay. Um, Stephen was an intelligent child who could be described as pretty nerdy, and he enjoyed puzzles, Star Wars, and he and his father would often watch, uh, like, samurai films together. Stephen didn't have a lot of friends as a kid, but he was passionate about learning and looked up to American figures like Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. He was also a very orderly child and kept everything in his life very neat and clean, earning the nickname Mr. Clean by his family. When Stephen was in his teens, he sang alto in the Atlanta Boys Choir, and he became very involved in his church. So much so that he joined a faith group that traveled around the state of Georgia and helped restore old churches and places of worship. Stephen graduated from high school in 2004 with honor roll, and he was actually voted most likely to become famous due to his writing skills. And because Stephen worked so hard in school, he was awarded a presidential scholarship to attend Mercer University. And in his first four years, Stephen majored in business, 
But after he finished his undergrad, he enrolled at Mercer University's law school, just like Lauren. So it's kind of interesting because this apartment complex, the Barrister's Hall Apartments, they're, like we said, made specifically for law students. So everybody who lived in those apartments were going right across the street to law school. Right. So, that's, so they knew each other. Exactly. Yeah, they definitely knew each other. So Stephen mainly kept to himself. He wasn't known to go out and party. He rarely drank alcohol and rarely even left his apartment unless it pertained to school. He was, however, the vice president of the Federalist Society, which we talked about earlier, at the time when Lauren was the president. So they did know each other, you know, pretty well, I'd say. While attending law school, Lauren and Stephen had moved into the Barrister Hall apartments, separately of course, as we mentioned earlier, and in 2008, Stephen had asked Lauren out on a few occasions. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, if you see pictures of Stephen, definitely not Lauren's type. They whatsoever. are very different. I mean, Opposites. like we mentioned, he's, you know, nothing wrong with being nerdy, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, insulting his appearance at all, but he's definitely... You know, kind of a nerdier dude. and He's she's a timid this... little mousy man. Is yeah. What I would ex- <laughs> that's how I would explain him. Timid mousy and, man. And, uh, yeah, and then obviously she is just this very fashionable girly girl, uh, just uh, j- absolutely on different levels. Yeah, so Lauren was not interested in him. And on top of that, she already had a boyfriend, David, who was living in Atlanta. That's right. But Lauren, who was always kind to everyone, made sure to let Stephen down easy and not hurt his feelings. The two remained acquaintances, and some would even say that they were sort of friends. Stephen had had even met Lauren's family briefly when they were visiting her in Georgia at her apartment. Stephen was considered ultra-conservative by those who knew him, and one classmate recounted that Stephen yelled out in class that, quote, Obama was a communist. He was an oddball, often wearing chainmail to class. He would. And obsessively talking about zombie apocalypse uh, scenarios and asking classmates how they would pull off the perfect murder plot. Yikes, like he's that student. He's yeah, that, he's that guy. Yeah, he's that peer. So one neighbor who lived below Stephen in the apartment complex recalled, quote, he would run from room to room and oh, could he curse. She also explained that in the three years she lived by Stephen, she never once saw him have any visitors. Another classmate had this to say about Stephen. Stephen McDaniel does seem like a pretty weird guy. Every image of him online shows this wild-haired and squirrely character, uh, as I mentioned, Mouse Man, uh, (laughs) that kind of summons mental images of the Simpsons character, Sideshow Bob. And the first time I saw a photo of Steven, I was like, that's fucking Sideshow Bob. Totally see it. But just because Steven was a strange guy, that didn't automatically mean that he was a killer. So police looked into Lauren's boyfriend, David, as a person of interest, but they discovered that he had been in California on a golf trip during the time that Lauren went missing. But he did receive an alarming email from Lauren just before her disappearance. She told David that she was scared that someone was watching her and that she didn't feel safe being at her apartment alone. And by the way, this wasn't the first time she had mentioned that she felt someone was watching her. She actually said this to her sister a year prior. That just makes this case that much creepier. Yeah. So the email started with, quote, I just had an awkward conversation with a friend. 
stating that she had spoken with a person who was prying about she and David's relationship. So somebody who was, you know, Uh, asking her a lot about her relationship. And she mentioned that someone had tried to break into her apartment the previous Thursday night, but she chalked it up to what she referred to as making hoodlums. David didn't respond to this email because he would be back in Georgia soon and figured that they could talk in person. Yeah, so it's kind of strange here because she obviously feels like somebody is watching her. She also, I I read one article that said that someone had broken into her apartment and things were moved around. So she's kind of sketched out, but she's also so busy with the bar exam that she just, she can't really bother with this right now. Right, so which which is horrible because obviously if she is feeling threatened in her day-to-day, but she still has to be in her apartment to study and do this for a few days and her her boyfriend's not in town, it's like not a good situation. Yeah, exactly. So now that you know a little bit about Steven, let's get back to the day that he was interviewed by the news station on June 30th, 2011. Before that interview, just before noon, Lauren's neighbors were asked to come to the police station to give statements about Lauren's disappearance and to give consent to search their apartments for any clues leading to Lauren's whereabouts. And everybody agreed except for one person, Stephen. When asked by officers why Stephen wouldn't consent, he said, quote, It's the lawyer in me. I'm just always protective of my space. So right off the bat, detectives became a bit suspicious of Stephen, especially when they learned that the night that Ashley Morehouse and fellow students were in Lauren's apartment searching for her, Stephen had actually stopped by to help, something that Ashley later said made her feel really uncomfortable. After some convincing, Stephen did allow officers to search his apartment, under the supervision of him, of course. But while they searched his place that morning, Stephen appeared to be unhinged, He was sweating profusely, and he drank almost 10 bottles of water while detectives were there. Your guilt is showing. Yeah, a little bit, huh? Investigators seemed to be very hot on Stephen's trail, but they didn't have enough to arrest him. That is, until officers found condoms in Stephen's apartment. And no, he was not arrested for practicing safe sex, and you're probably wondering what this even means. Yeah. Well, during an initial interview on the morning of June 30th, the day the torso was found, Stephen told investigators that he wanted to remain celibate until marriage due to his Christian faith. Now, remembering Stephen's celibacy comment, investigators later asked him in his apartment why he would have condoms. And Stephen replied, Oh, I stole them from someone else's apartment. Well, I don't know why you would admit that. Why would you even... Yeah, you just admitted to breaking and entering. But not only that, like, that still doesn't explain why you have them. So what you're saying is still irrelevant. Yeah, and you're also just making yourself look so fucking suspicious. Yeah, making yourself look like not only the breaking and entering thing, but that you're going into other people's apartments in your building while we're talking about someone in your building being murdered. Yeah. So detectives couldn't arrest him on murder charges, but since he had just admitted to breaking and entering, that was enough to arrest Stephen McDaniel and bring him in for questioning. It was this little crumb that investigators needed to get him in an interrogation room. So that night, Stephen was taken down to the police station, and at 11.08 p.m., Detective David Patterson walked into the interview room. Stephen was wearing a pair of flip-flops, a navy-colored shirt, 
and jean shorts, or jorts as I like to call them. Uh, <laughs> and he was almost comatose in his posture, not moving, but staring straight forward. I mean, when you look at the, because uh, this is also on YouTube if you guys want to check it out. We'll, uh, we'll post a clip. It, he looks very creepy. He's just like staring at the wall. So as Detective Patterson broke the ice with Stephen in the interview room, Stephen replied in a very mousy and monotone voice. Almost every answer was yes, no, or I don't know. Detective Patterson asked Stephen why he was shutting down, and all Stephen could say was, I don't know. Patterson began to get frustrated saying, you know, you know, you do know, snap out of it. How many times are you gonna say that you don't know? And of course, Stephen's response was, you guessed it, I don't know. God, smack this guy. I know. So another detective entered the room at 11.35 p.m. and began to grill Stephen himself, telling him that they found blood in his apartment and that he, quote, didn't get it all up. But Stephen remained silent. Just after midnight, photographs of Stephen's body were taken and detectives noticed that he had some fresh scratches on his stomach, which Stephen said he must have done to himself in his sleep. Yeah, yeah makes right. sense. Yeah. Uh, but detectives knew otherwise. That entire night was spent questioning Stephen without getting anywhere. But when the questioning was done, detectives had one thing, the burglary arrest, which ensured that Stephen would sit in jail until they could find more evidence against him. Stephen had stolen one single condom from two separate apartments in his complex telling police that the doors were unlocked, so he just entered. That doesn't mean you can go in, and also, why are you taking condoms? Like, what? that makes no sense. And why are you taking one, si yeah, like one, one single, single condom? One single condom from two different apartments. It's just the weirdest thing. It's bizarre. But just before the detectives left the room, they took a few hairs from Stephen's head, saying, quote, Somebody always leaves something behind. You're not gonna win. There's too much evidence. So with Stephen now in jail, detectives had to get to work to put the pieces together. Initially, in Lauren's apartment, there was no blood found anywhere. But when a luminol test was conducted in Lauren's bathroom, investigators were shocked. The test indicated that there was blood all over the bathroom and inside the bathtub that had been cleaned meticulously. But that wasn't the kicker, because when police obtained a search warrant for Stephen's apartment, they were baffled at what they found. This is what detectives seized from their search. So detectives found two handguns, a rifle, rope, four baseball bats, a bayonet, a chainmail vest, a camera, a laptop, a cell phone, an external card drive and memory card reader, receipts, a green scrub sponge, two keys, and a journal. Police also took Stephen's car, which was a 1997 black Geo Prism with a bumper sticker on the back that said, Pray. But here's the shocking part. Detectives found the sleeve to a hacksaw, but the hacksaw was missing. And remember earlier, we talked about how a hacksaw was found in the laundry room. Yep. They also found 52 indecent images of children on a memory stick and a pair of women's underwear that after being tested for DNA, proved to belong to Lauren Giddings. 
Detectives also found that Stephen would often switch between porn sites, where he would watch dismemberment videos and rape videos, to searching Lauren's Facebook and her Twitter page, as well as her LinkedIn. He even searched, quote, nude Lauren Giddings on numerous occasions. This is so weird because why would this possibly come up in a Google search? Yeah, I, I don't know what he was thinking. What he's, He thought he was going to find nude pictures of Lauren. Why would those Google be search? online? It's not like she's, you know, a celebrity with a sex tape, you know? Exactly. I don't know what he was thinking. Maybe he was just hoping and praying and crossing his fingers or something. Creepy. Um, but also, on numerous occasions, uh, he would search molest sleeping girl and how to permanently erase search history. This guy is so messed up. So I mean, messed Jesus. up. So he would see Lauren when they were outside of the apartment and be friendly and stuff. And then as soon as he got into his apartment, he's searching like murder porn and Lauren's name. So obviously this was enough to officially charge Stephen McDaniel with first degree murder on August 2nd, 2011. The keys that detectives confiscated from Stephen's apartment actually ended up being master keys to the whole freaking complex, which would give Stephen access to any unit on the property, including Lauren's. So I'm assuming that Stephen probably stole these keys. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that as well. I, I, he should not have these. He's not a maintenance guy or a yeah. manager or anything. And also during the early days of the investigation, a man named Thad Money and no, that's not a made-up name, um, called the Macon police and told them that he used to be Stephen's old roommate during his undergrad and that Stephen would often tell him that he would commit the perfect murder and get away with it. So, you know, obviously not only this, we had mentioned before of the things that classmates said about him. Yeah. So this dude is just like fucking weird. Yeah. On August 3rd of 2011, Stephen pled not guilty to his murder charges but he was charged on August 23rd for the indecent images of children and the burglary charges. So he remained in jail until his trial, which was set to begin in May of 2014. But in a twist of events, just a week before Stephen was set to go to trial, he finally confessed to killing Lauren. That means that Stephen would forego a trial altogether and he was quickly sentenced to life in prison at the age of 28, but he will be eligible for parole in the year of 2041 at the age of 55. Stephen relayed what really happened to Lauren Giddings. On Sunday, June 26, 2011, at 4.30 a.m., Stephen, wearing a mask and gloves, entered Lauren's apartment using the master key that he had for the complex. He then entered Lauren's room where he watched her sleep for a short period of time. But then the floor creaked and Lauren woke up to a masked man standing over her bed. Lauren yelled at the intruder, get the fuck out, before Stephen jumped on top of her and wrapped his hands around Lauren's neck. At some point during this struggle, Stephen's mask came off and Lauren noticed him and said, Stephen, stop. Then they fell to the floor, and Stephen continued to strangle Lauren to death. Stephen then dragged Lauren's lifeless body to her bathroom and placed her in the bathtub. After that, over the next few days, he used a hacksaw that he had purchased from Walmart to dismember her body and place her body parts 
and separate black plastic bags, which he then disposed of in different dumpsters all around campus. Then he cleaned up the blood before disposing of one last body part, the torso in the dumpster outside of his apartment. That was incredibly stupid, and I'm glad he did that, but that is incredibly stupid to put it at the freaking apartment. And the crazy thing is on June 30th, when the investigation officially began, the garbage trucks were due to come by that day and pick up the trash. But they were blocked by police units surrounding the area. So if police had not searched that day, there would likely be no trace of Lauren ever found because no other body parts were ever discovered after a very extensive search effort. Stephen later explained that he had been stalking Lauren and would often use a camera attached to a stick to spy on her through her apartment window discreetly. And I did read some reports that said that a friend had noticed that Stephen or that somebody was spying on Lauren through her apartment window with a camera attached to a stick. So the, the reports are kind of conflicting there. Either way, we know what happened and it's freaky as hell. In 2018, Stephen appealed his sentence under the claim that his constitutional rights had been violated during the investigation, but also while he awaited his trial. However, a Georgia judge denied his appeal. It seemed as if this was one last act where Stephen could play lawyer because, you know, his future of becoming one was completely gone now. After Lauren's murder, her boyfriend David told the media, quote, it's been hell. Time, as some people say, heals all wounds. And if it does, it hasn't even begun yet. That's so tragic. I know, it's really he, sad. like, really loved her. I, I just, I mean, it's just such a brutal crime. And also the fact that this guy, you know, she was so nice to him. He, she rejected him, but she reportedly did so nicely. She was nice to everybody. And he was seemingly just obsessed with her. Yeah. A college fund was set up in Lauren's name for students who are academically fit but unable to pay for tuition. And Lauren's mother Karen said, quote, I talked to a priest friend of mine and he said, she's not floating around. She's at this heavenly banquet. There's a feast and there's wine. So I tried to visualize that because that is Lauren. At Lauren's alma mater, Agnes Scott College, a softball tournament was set up where her former team, the Scotties, played in order to raise money for Lauren's college fund. The athletes, of course, all wore pink, and the tournament was properly named the Butterbean Tournament, something Lauren would have absolutely loved. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this tragic episode of Going West. And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. I almost forgot what day it was. I know. Uh, <laughs> this case um, almost it re reminds me a little bit of the um, Ashley Young case that we covered back oh, in yeah, November. definitely. Yeah, it has a very similar tones to it. Just both absolutely devastating cases. Neither of these murders should have occurred. And uh, it, it's really interesting, too, to think back to that uh, interview that we played of Steven when he when they tell him that they found a body part 
And knowing that he murdered her and watching his reaction, you know, he's probably like, oh, fuck. Yeah, like, I'm totally screwed up. Right. And that's that's kind of like the best, like the cherry on top is when you, he realizes, because he thought, you know, he got away with it. Right, but sadly, it comes across as, and even the interviewer, uh, the news reporter, is kind of treating it like, hey, are you okay? Yeah. Because he's, he's also acting like this stunned friend, like, no, she's dead. But he's you know? like internally freaking the right. fuck out. So yeah. he, it worked out for him in that moment because it came across as um, uh, shock and grief versus guilt. But watching it w- with what we know, it's like, oh, you're you're freaking out because you're caught. Exactly. And how could I forget when he's crying or fake crying and saying, why would someone do this to her? And maybe if I, I heard something, I, I could have stopped them. Like, how? How dare you? Yeah, and he also talks about the fact that, oh, like, I would have given her one of my guns. I I have a gun in my apartment. I could have given her one for protection. It's like, dude, you are such a piece of shit. Such. Oh, my God. So thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Thank you for sharing the show. We love you guys so much. Every time you tell a friend or give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts, it really helps our show, and we appreciate you guys so much. Also, if you guys want to hang out with us at CrimeCon, head over to CrimeCon.com and use our code GOINGWEST to get 10% off of your standard badge. Yes, it's a little over a month away, so we are fast approaching. So make sure to get your tickets, reserve your hotels, unless you live locally, all that good stuff. And hopefully we'll see you there. And let's hang out. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done